Today's scripture reading will be from Philippians 3, 12 through 4, 1. Not that I have already obtained this or already am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made it his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to make it like his glorious body, the power, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stands firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You can be seated. Howdy. You did pretty good. All right. Um, oh, there we go. All right. So uh, is Miss Kylie here today? Uh, where, where's she at? Right back there. All right. Would you stand for a minute? Let's welcome her. All right. She did a very quick stand. She's right back there. Yeah, that's, that's good. We want to welcome her. Um, uh, as always, whenever somebody places membership with us, you can look in the bulletin and, and learn a little bit uh, about Kylie this morning. But thank you for being here and uh, glad that you're here. Welcome. Uh, also, to everybody who's just joining us through Facebook, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. And all of you, welcome and good morning. I'm glad you guys are here today. All right, a couple of things. Uh, one, we're in Philippians chapter 3, so get there in your Bibles. Uh, two, Dell was right to say that today's scripture is about running a race. And Dell was also right to say that we can easily run to the wrong finish line. And, and my last part about that would just be, I really wish he would have given Lori that big slimy hug because <laughs> that would be a great story too. But next time, next time. Uh, and the last thing is this. It is about a race. Uh, it is also about the most... Uh, maybe let's say the second most awkward bodily function problem that can happen to you in public. So uh, let's talk about that for a minute. Okay, there's my transition. Uh, you get to the meeting. You haven't eaten breakfast because you've been up early preparing your notes and your PowerPoint. It's an important day for you. You walk up to the microphone and you begin your presentation when you are interrupted. No, not by someone else in the meeting room but by your own body which has betrayed you. A loud gurgling arises from inside. The microphone picks it up and projects it throughout the room. Someone makes a joke about how you ought to get up early enough to make, you know, make breakfast before you come to give your presentation. You're sitting at the first date. You're hungry, of course. You've uh, been so nervous all day you couldn't eat. And just as you're looking longingly into the eyes of this beautiful creature across from you, your body betrays you. The stomach growls. You're hungry. 
Anybody ever been in a moment like this? Okay, now we didn't get to do this in first service because we didn't know about the Boston Marathon story. But how many of you can picture yourself running the Boston Marathon? Hands up. There's three of us. Good. Now that's good because this is about a race. Four of us. Okay, I caught you back there. How many of you have ever had your stomach growled in an opportune time in public or in front of a loved one? See, see what I'm saying right there? Okay, you're all about to relate to this sermon one way or the other. So Paul is in prison, and they don't feed you there. And Paul is hungry. The Ephesian church has probably been bringing him food to eat. After all, they're looking after their own. But the Ephesian church is also busy taking care of the widows and the orphans, and they've got a lot of them. And so there have been a few mornings when they bring a small portion of food by to Paul, but he puts his hands up and he says, No, I can get by today. Now the guy next to him on the left and the right that are in chains think he is nuts. They would love to have somebody bringing them a little bit more breakfast each day. And right as, G as uh, Paul is telling this friend in chains, in prison, about Jesus, his favorite topic, one morning, he begins to tell another story about Jesus. And this particular story involves lunch, and it's the feeding of the 5,000. You all know it, right? And so he says to the guy, look, this one day uh, they didn't have enough food to feed everybody, and so they looked around and they found this one boy's small little lunch pail, and just then Paul's stomach interrupts, you know. And the guy is like, I can't believe that you turned away that food they brought you today. And I think, with all seriousness, this is, a whole, this is a fictitious story. In case you didn't know, this is not in the book of Acts. But I believe it with my whole heart. That Paul looked at him, and he said, Oh, that's just a belly thing. Don't worry about it. Back to Jesus. And then he probably said some other things to him, these hungry uh, co-prisoners. Like, um, in fact, one time Jesus said that, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And what he meant was... And one time Jesus said that man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And one time Jesus, my, my same Lord, went out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights and didn't eat by choice in order to focus himself for his ministry. He participated in some suffering through his choice there and didn't give in to the temptation of using his power to, you know, like microwave rocks into bread for himself because he was preparing for an even greater suffering that he wouldn't have a choice in. And let me tell you about Jesus. Over and over and over. Paul would turn the topic back to this Lord and the way that this Lord lived his life in spite of adversity. Paul is going to be telling his... Uh, are we, are we down? Are we? Uh, uh, let's go ahead and get, there we go, thanks. I just didn't know if maybe we were, sometimes the computer goes out or something. Okay, Paul's going to be talking to the Philippians okay, from prison about this idea, pressing on, about pressing on. And before I reread today's scripture, let me gently remind us and call us back to what Paul had just written in last week's reading. Paul had just gotten done with these words in his letter when he writes about pressing on in spite of adversity, in spite of hunger in prison, or whatever else may hold us back. Paul had said 
he counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, last week we talked about how this meant for Paul that secular success, religious success, or even moral success didn't really mean much compared to knowing Jesus and having a personal relationship with Jesus that was characterized by these things, being found in him, matched up with the story of Jesus who emptied himself and opened his hands and came to earth and obeyed and suffered on the cross, okay, found in his story. Having a righteousness not of Paul's own from you know, religious legalism, but from faith in Christ. And then he calls it this, this beautiful thing, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and, and share in his sufferings. Become like him in his death so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is sitting here shackled, literally in, in a prison pit. They would have probably had him down below the floor level, lowered in there by a ladder, maybe with a few rungs, a, a few bars and a small window that looked out to the street and maybe not. So that at all times he feels like he is lower and in the dark and bound and hungry and he says but I want to share in the sufferings of Jesus so he was hungry for 40 days I can be hungry here because what I'm looking for is the resurrection from the dead a whole new kind of restored life by God and so he'll write to the Philippians to press on to press on to maturity and here's the way that he says it Paul writes to them, It's not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. The this that he's referring to is the verses I just read. That's why we read them again. I haven't already obtained, like perfectly living out the story of Jesus. I'm not, I'm not perfect in keeping my mindset on his resurrection in my sufferings. Because you know as well as I do, that the things that we suffer cost us, don't they? Paul's hunger cost him. He wasn't perfect in being matched to Jesus' suffering. Do you think that there were not moments where Paul's hunger grew to such an extent that he thought, is this worth it? Don't you think that there were moments when he was awake in that jail cell at night and his body was racked with some pain and spasms because the awkward position they kept him chained in. And don't you also have nights when you're awake in the dark and you feel alone on your bed because of the things that you're suffering? Some of you have lost loved ones. Some have buried children, spouses. Some of you had to give up jobs that you expected you would keep for a long time because of layoffs or moved to places in the world you didn't expect to live, had uh, conditions, physical illnesses, or diseases set in. And, and these kind of things can keep us awake. I bet there is a lot of suffering represented here this morning. There's a lot of us that will talk about it and share it, but there's a lot of us that will keep it hidden. And God knows Paul says, I'm not perfect in this, but I press on. 
And today he's going to give us a couple of clues. They're very simple, and I cannot promise that they will relieve or take away all of your pain. But they're clues that Paul gives that help us to move our mind and our hope and our focus forward in Jesus and to be healed of some of the suffering that we experience. Paul says it all starts with this in verse 12. I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul says that when Jesus bought me, I was baptized into his story, that I now find when I suffer, I'm looking to Jesus' story to learn how to do it. He made me his own. So when I'm sitting here hungry, that's why I'm telling all these stories about Jesus feeding people or going through the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. I wonder what part of Jesus' story matters to you because of the suffering you're experiencing. You remember that Jesus lost a parent. We don't know how Joseph died or when it happened, but by the time he was at the cross, only Mary was there. Jesus buried a loved one. You know that Jesus never had that perfect uh, romantic relationship. He was single. He didn't have children. You know that Jesus was a refugee in a foreign country. Got chased out of his own home. There's a lot of parts of his story and sometimes the parts that we miss until we are suffering, but we know like Paul, he's made me his own and we, li we look into the story of Jesus, we gaze into his story and we find our surprise that he teaches us how to live and find joy through our suffering. Paul writes, uh, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. I want to do a little bit of teaching out of these verses, and then we're going to move into a comparison that Paul gives that helps us as we wrestle with the things that we're going through in our life. So get your notebooks open, pull out your bulletin, and take down a few notes on these words in these verses. The first thing that I want you to see is that Paul says he's not been made perfect in verse 12. And down in verse 15, he uses the same word, the same Greek word that we translate mature. Let those who are mature think this way. In other words, let those who are perfect think this way. Paul can say in the same paragraph of his writing, I am not perfect. I can't suffer as well as Jesus. And then he'll say, but this is the only way to suffer perfectly. It's the only mature way to handle suffering. I'm not there yet. I am not Jesus, but Jesus' way is the only successful way. Paul knows we will not find healing in our suffering unless we're doing it Jesus' way. Also, Paul says this. He says, I uh, press on toward the goal, circle or mark the word goal. This is the word that Dell was thinking of when he told you that Paul was writing about a race. He's pressing on towards the finish line. 
is this word in Greek. Towards the goal for the prize. The prize would have been often a crown made of wreaths or laurels that would be placed on the head of the winner. Uh, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, he says, look, I'm racing for the finish line. I want that crown. He's going to define that crown here in just a few verses. But what he's saying is that the race is an upwards race towards God in Christ Jesus. Think about where he's writing it from. The pit of the prison. They're doing everything they can to make him feel less than the rest of humanity. Do we not sometimes feel less than the rest of humanity in our suffering? At night, with the thoughts that circle around and around again like vultures over its prey, don't we sometimes feel like the less than? God, I'm not worthy. I might not even be good. Why am I living through this? Paul says we've got to fix our eyes upward on the call of God in Christ Jesus. And for Paul, this will take on a very practical nature. Paul wants to make a difference between downward looking and downward thinking and upward looking and upward thinking. He's going to say it first this way. Forget what is past and strain forward. He says we've got to make a separation between what has been and what can be. What has been and what will be. The way we used to think and used to live and the way we're now hoping and finding peace and finding joy and the overflow of God's Holy Spirit pressing on forward. He's going to do this using two groups of people. So in your notes today, you're going to make with me a column for the, for the people that are the looking backwards people or the looking downwards people. And you're going to make a column for the people that are the looking forwards people or the looking upwards people people. This is Paul's clue for us. So here's the first group. The looking downward, looking backward people. What you're going to notice here is that Paul doesn't identify who these people are. He doesn't say these are the Jewish legalists that he was talking about in the earlier paragraph. He doesn't say that these are a bunch of Gentile idolaters that don't belong in the kingdom of God or a bunch of sinners who just can't get it right. Instead, what Paul does is gives us a generic list of features about the kind of people that look a certain direction. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Question, what do you have to do to fix your eyes on somebody? What do I have to do if I want to fix my eyes on Ed out there in the middle of the audience? I've got to lift my eyes. I've got to lift them and look out at him. Paul starts, he's like, lift your eyes. The upward call of God. Fix them out further. And then he says, this is the first list of people. He says, for many of whom I'm often told you, and now even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's going to give four characteristics of the people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now notice that Paul doesn't say they're enemies of Christ. They might even think about themselves as being friends of Christ. But this is very important. Paul says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. What does that mean? It means these are people who do not believe that God works through crosses. They only believe that God works through pay raises, through blessings, 
They don't believe God could ever work through the loss of your family member, only that he has to multiply your family. They never believe that God could work through suffering, only that he would work through curing. And God is a God of blessing and restoration, but not all of it comes now. And some people refuse to believe that God works through the struggles of life, and they only ever see those as the enemy's curse. And so the enemy wins because what he has tried to do to destroy actually destroys. They become consumed with it, obsessed with the loss, and they never look for the restoration that God might bring through it. Look at how he plays it out in these four bullet points that he gives about the people. He says their end is destruction. You see, the, the enemy ends up winning. He destroys all their hope, all their joy. All their peace is taken from them. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. This is a way for Paul to say they're looking backwards and they're looking down. Even literally, you can picture it because he says their God is their belly. Uh, I want you to get kinetically engaged, okay? So everybody now, practice with me the two kinds of looking, okay? Keep your eyes on me, okay? So keep your eyes on me. Everybody look, right? You've got to look upward, right? See, good, good. Now, everybody look at your belly. You can feel it, right? Keep your eyes on me right now. Do it again. On your belly. Now we're, all, you know, it's like, yes, no, yes, no. Right? Okay. This is what Paul is doing. He says there's a, there's a certain way of living through suffering where all we think about is the emptiness and the hollow inside. In fact, the word belly that Paul uses is a fantastic Greek word. When you open up a Greek dictionary about this word, the first thing it says is this word means hollow. But they used it metaphorically for this body part where in this hollow of your body, all these organs were at. So it was the cavity where the organs were stored. And so they used it for the word belly because the belly is hollow. That's where the food goes in, right? And they used it for the womb. So in the story of Jesus and uh, his the angel comes to Mary to predict that Jesus is going to be born. Do you remember when she gets the news, she runs off to her cousin Elizabeth? And when she gets to Elizabeth's house, it says in the Greek text there, it says, the baby leapt in her belly. But most of the English says in her womb, because we know that that's the specific cavity the baby's in. Now you've heard people say, like to the little brother or sister or whatever, right? Like, now the baby in mommy's belly will be here, right? So we all get that. But it's a cavity, uh, it even sometimes gets used to mean the heart, and this is why. When the ancients talked about emotions, they usually didn't say, we feel it in our heart. They said, we feel it in our guts. And so in Greek, the word heart and the word belly are often interchangeable depending on which author is writing about the seat of emotions. It comes from this empty place inside. It's gnawing feeling to have grief. It's a self-eating from the inside out feeling to have lost work, to have illness. It's a hunger 
that desires to be filled. And Paul, writing from the hungry pit of prison, is saying to these dear Philippian brothers, there is a kind of suffering where all you do is you stare into the emptiness, into the hollow, and it consumes you. It's so much so that there's a kind of way of living that looking at it for so long, looking at your suffering and only seeing it causes your belly to become your God. And this is what he's refusing to do in prison is let it get him down. If you want evidence of it, read chapter one again. He says, I'm in prison, but this is okay with me because there's an opportunity for Christ to be preached. Even the palace guards can't help it. They have to overhear me preach Christ because they're stationed outside the door. So I'm getting to preach to prisoners. I'm getting to preach to guards and the people outside. Now they've got to preach because I'm not there to do it for them. Paul's just like this. I'm in prison, but guess what it's resolved in? Preaching, 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 preaching about Jesus. Because of my suffering, everyone is talking about Jesus and this is when he could have and we would have been fine with this he could have just said this is the worst hunger I've ever felt and we'd have been like yeah this is bad and it was bad and it's okay to hurt in your grief it's okay to struggle through your pain don't add guilt and shame on top of the pain you already feel God loves you and understands that it hurts But if you're willing to raise your eyes and look towards a different goal, he would like to put you in the category of people, go ahead for me if you would, who have a different strategy for their suffering. Are we, there we go, thank you. Look at how Paul refers to the next group of people, and then I'll read the verses to you. There are a kind of people who have citizenship in heaven, Instead of being destroyed by their suffering, they know where they belong. God is not their belly, but the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who's starved in the wilderness and made uh, food for 5,000 out of small little lunches and so many other ways fills and nourishes us as their God. And their glory is not things that bring shame, but being transformed so that even their bodies are going to be made like his glorious body at the resurrection. Instead of having their minds just down on earthly things, they think about how all things are subject to Jesus Christ. These are the way that he writes it. This is the words that he uses. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he's writing this again to Philippi. People who are living in a Roman colony who are trying to gain Roman citizenship. No, our citizenship is in heaven. We belong to another land. We have another king, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And all of those fancy words or maybe even vanilla-sounding words that Paul throws in right there at the end that, that a lot of times we thought that's the beginning of the next chapter, but that's really the end of this thought right here. Those words right there, Paul says, where is my joy when I'm suffering in prison from hunger? And he looks at the Philippians through the pen of his letter and he says, you're my joy. See, at the beginning of this chapter, he said for the first time, he said, rejoice in the Lord. And he hasn't said that again until now he says, and you're my joy. 
So stand firm thus in the Lord. I love you. I long for you. He calls them my beloved. This is Paul moving outside of himself and outside of his story to think about the large ramifications of what God's doing in the people. This is Paul looking out at the Bentonville Church of Christ and saying to you guys, you're not alone in your suffering. And the one thing that maybe God gives you to help is that these people in the church around you can be your joy. As you serve each other and look to each other and carry each other's burdens and do all the one anotherness of like love one another and be at peace with one another and you know support one another, all these things that are in the scripture, you actually become the joy of the other person that they've been looking for, that you've been looking for. And it's not just in this service either. The, your joy is also the people in first service, even if you don't see them as often. And your joy is also the people that meet at the Pea Ridge Church or the Gravit Church or that meet in some prison church in North Korea or under a house church that's got to be secret in China. All of these people that God is moving in and amongst become part of your joy. And just think about what's happening. Your eyes are lifting from the belly to the faces of these people around the world that are the people of God. This is why Paul from prison can write to them and say uh, some things he'll say in chapter 4 that we'll get to in the next two weeks, like uh, what to set your mind on. And he says, think about things that are true and noble and right. You get that one next week. It's so good. And two weeks from now, when I get to preach on, Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. He's thinking about you. Church, when Paul says, you're my joy and my crown, uh, he uses the word here, Stephanos, for crown. Stephanos is the word for that special kind of prize they'd been given at the end of the race, this crown of laurels, the one that our imaginative story of the soldier last week he had received from his commander. Paul says, you are my prize. And the only way that a person can say that is if they've been transformed through the cross of Jesus, conformed to the song. You remember that it's possible Paul even wrote that song from chapter 2, the one where he talks about Jesus opening his hands and coming to earth to serve and obey. It's very possible that Paul wrote this song while they were in prison. Listen to the words of verse 7. Paul wrote, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Did you forget that word already? It says he emptied himself. That's the hollow of the grief that the empty belly people are feeling in chapter 3. Paul says Jesus felt it to teach us how to live through it, how to work through it, how to find God in it and how to be filled to overflowing with his peace and his hope and his joy, even when all the world is falling apart. There's a resurrection coming. There's a new world coming. There's a hope in it. So, look not here, but here. Let's stand together this morning and sing. And if you want to come down and pray with us, uh, you're always welcome to pray down here. I'll come pray with you. An elder will come pray with you. We'll have some elders in the back to pray with you if you'd like to pray about your relationship with the Lord Jesus or maybe join his story through baptism this morning. Let's sing, Tom.